Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insight, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour podcast, and your host today is Carla Refold. Today we are joined by Nedin Thomas. He founded SQR Systems in 2010 with a platform to secure communication backbone that enables secure and compliant communications on apps and IoT sensors. He has established multiple R&D and commercial programs and partnerships with the Ministry of Defense, the US Department of Defense, as well as intelligence and government agencies within the Five Eyes community. Hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for coming on the the podcast with us today. We're really excited to hear about SQR Systems and the whole journey you've had with them. Thanks for hosting me. So let's start a little bit with you. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your background, where you grew up, that sort of thing? Sure. So I was uh, born in a city called uh, Trivandrum in uh, South India. So it's a uh, coastal city, beautiful weather, beautiful beaches, great food. It's a lot of fond memories uh, of my early childhood there. Uh, I traveled around quite a lot during my uh, childhood, actually. So I had a very fortunate uh, experience of uh, living in Saudi Arabia for a lot of my early childhood. I then uh, moved to the UK when I was 12 years old, did my high school here in, uh, in the UK in the city of Bath and then uh, moved to the coastal town of um, a coastal town in Halford West in uh, Pembrokeshire in West Wales. And then I did my university in uh, Bristol, where I did both my undergraduate and my postgraduate degrees in engineering. So it sounds like you've moved a few times. Do you think that's helped you in, in the world of work? Yeah, definitely. I think I was quite fortunate to have such a broad range of experiences. Actually, when I look back to my childhood, it's such a wide range of memories that I have from the uh, the beautiful sunny beaches in India to the uh, the bustling open air souks or markets in Saudi Arabia to living in a, a small town in Pembrokeshire. It really gives you a, a broad perspective on life. And I think that definitely is useful in any profession, but particularly in entrepreneurship, where you often have to work with a wide variety of different people. And you have a pretty impressive education. So tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) Thank you. So uh, I did my uh, master's degree in computer systems engineering at the University of Bristol, uh, where I spent uh, four years doing doing my master's degree and my full undergraduate degree. Uh, At the end of my degree, I was really sort of excited about uh, what was happening in the uh, security space, uh, in particular around cybersecurity and uh, cryptography. So I stayed on to do a PhD in video encryption techniques in Bristol as well. Uh, And this was really quite a pivotal moment in my life, I think. So when I finished my my undergraduate degree, I said I had a passion for two different areas. One was uh, around uh, graphics, uh, which I was really keen on uh, doing. 
uh, and the other was security, um, which also I found very fascinating. And the two were for completely different reasons, actually. So graphics, I just found it really enjoyable. But to be honest, I had absolutely no creative talent. So uh, that was a pretty dead end for me, I think. Uh, but uh, the security side, I found it really fascinating. And it was actually one of my lecturers in my undergraduate days, Professor Nigel Smart, who uh, I found to be one of the most uh, charismatic and passionate lecturers that we had in the university. Uh, and he really sort of drove home the importance of uh, good security in our life. And that's uh, what got me into the field. And I really wanted to stay on and uh, look at this area in a bit more detail. Do you remember the first time you heard about cybersecurity? Yeah, so it probably would have been around uh, 2003, 2004. I mean, it wasn't really called cybersecurity back then. Um, there were a lot of other terms like information security or uh, network security and so on. Uh, but the con um, the concept was still the same, I suppose. And cybersecurity as a brand, I suppose, evolved in the uh, 2010s. Uh, but the, the technologies that we were using for information security are pretty much exactly the same. Yeah, it feels like as soon as we started using the word cyber, everybody got interested. Yeah, definitely. I suppose it's probably a little bit more of a... Uh, um, a cool sounding word than something like information security, which sounds a lot more deeply technical. Yes, yeah. So how did you come up with the idea for SQR systems? So when I finished my PhD, I wanted to really do something with the research that I had done, and I wanted to find a way to apply this in the real world. I've always had a passion for entrepreneurship, so I've always wanted to set up my own company. So I thought uh, I ought to at least explore whether I could apply some of these technologies in the real world and commercialize this research. So I set up the company to look for a commercial application. So we had a great technology. We knew we could do uh, encrypted video over um, different types of networks better than anybody else. Um, and by we, I mean my co-founder and I who met at the university, Rockman Law. Um, so we wanted to set up this company to try and commercialize this, but we didn't really know what exactly the application would be. So there was a lot of uh, market search going on at, the, at that time. But this was the time uh, during the height of the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan conflict. And one of the uh, big challenges that they had during those, uh, those, those two wars is that there were a lot of sensors being put out there to capture more and more uh, information from the battlefield. But the infrastructure to communicate this in, uh, information was still very much unreliable. Satellites were expensive and uh, terrestrial networks were very uh, unreliable. So our technology would enable you to uh, optimize encrypted data uh, in a way that you could still deliver a really reliable communications network over whatever infrastructure you might have um, on the ground. So this had uh, a very good application in the defense and national security space. So we were funded by some of the agencies in the UK and the US to look at some of these problems. And that's how the company really started, um, started its initial work in that space. Since then, of course, we've evolved quite a, quite a bit. And uh, the, the techniques and the technologies that we developed for the national security space are equally important in a lot of the commercial environments where you're handling sensitive data. So how has how has that evolved from the the start to now? What what looks different? So actually, 
funnily enough, there's a lot of similarities between what was happening back then in the in the defense and national security space and what's happening in the commercial space now. Um, I think the main sort of similarity is that back then we were thinking about how we can deliver uh, security, uh, secure uh, data over unreliable networks. And these kind of networks were things like satellite networks and uh, radio networks and so on. Whereas now we're thinking of exactly the same problem, but in the context of things like cloud computing and uh, um, commercial mobile networks and uh, untrusted Wi-Fi hotspots and so on. Um, so really the problem is exactly the same. How do you communicate securely when you can't necessarily trust your infrastructure or you don't have control over your infrastructure? It's just that the uh, the context of that problem is has shifted from a, a military context to a commercial one. Um, but in terms of how things have changed in the industry, I would say one of the biggest differences that we have found is just the absolute um, uh, proliferation of technologies in this space. So when we first started working in this space, there were very few small companies and startups and uh, innovative companies operating in this space. Uh, so what that meant in um, in the real, in real terms was that you could actually pick up the phone and cold call somebody working in government and actually you could get through and pitch your solution and you would get heard. Whereas now there's so many companies that are competing for attention and so many uh, solutions that vary from uh, very innovative solutions to um, uh, more sort of uh, iterative sort of uh, solutions. Um, so it becomes a lot more harder to get the attention of the buyers and it becomes much more important to differentiate your solution and really uh, clarify what your proposition is very quickly. And how do you go about that? How do you stand out amongst all the noise of these other products? Well, I think there's a couple of things that uh, we try and emphasize early on. First of all, it's the uh, benefit of using our technology. It's the uh, ability to remove the reliance on your infrastructure to provide the security. So you don't need to care what kind of software you're deploying, what kind of hardware infrastructure you have. You have a consistent layer of security running over whatever um, IT infrastructure you've deployed. So that means you get better consistency of uh, risk management and um, uh, and so on. So understanding that value proposition and communicating that very clearly um, upfront is is quite key. Um, the second thing is really around credentializing the uh, uh, the proposition and talking about uh, track records. So particularly if you're a small business that's trying to enter um, a a new market then it's really important to emphasize where you've had success in the past and some of the use cases and uh, users that have deployed this successfully um, so that uh, you build cred credibility early on. And what do you see uh, CISOs being concerned about? How can you pitch something to them in a way that actually solves their problem? Well, I think we're in a uh, very interesting period at the moment because um, uh, over the last few weeks, definitely we're not in a business as usual uh, sort of environment. So over the last couple of weeks, there have been a couple of uh, specific issues that CISOs are concerned about. One is the dramatic increase of spear phishing and fraudulent emails and targeted attacks like that. Uh, now, this may well be a temporary issue during this disru disruption period. 
but actually it might not be. It might be the start of a trend that continues even beyond uh, the, uh, the COVID-19 um, phase. So this might be something that actually we need a longer term strategy for in terms of dealing with. Um, but the second area is really around the inconsistent layers of security that are being deployed in organizations. Most companies have had to react very, very quickly to uh, the COVID-19 uh, disruption, which has meant that ensuring business continuity has been the number one uh, priority. So deploying whatever tools are available to ensure um, efficient remote working and the ability to set up home working very quickly. That has been the, the big priority for a lot, a lot of organizations. But of course, what this then leads to is uh, a lot of gaps in the, in the overall security of the organization and the security posture of the organization, uh, which would have normally been considered when ro rolling out a lot of these tools, but there just hasn't been enough time to think about some of these things over the last few weeks. So some of the classic examples around this are things like uh, when um, Zoom was being used by a lot of the cabinet office uh, here in the UK, and uh, there were widely reported media reports about uh, some of the uh, security um, issues that were caused by that in the early days. Uh, things like this we will see more and more of. So being able to provide a consistent layer of security for the organization, regardless of what tools they deploy, uh, that's going to be one of the, the big challenges going forward. Yes, it feels like that's not going to go away if we see more working from home and sort of a trend towards remote working. Absolutely, because if you think about it, um, the organization no longer has control of the IT infrastructure because we already started using things like bring your own device where we were using personal devices in the uh, workplace setting. Uh, cloud computing, again, meant that the data was stored um, outside of the enterprise boundary. Uh, but this is just the next phase of, uh, of the evolution of the uh, IT network, um, IT infrastructure, where uh, none of that data is uh, sitting within the uh, enterprise boundary now. So all of those um, good principles uh, that we've been building around ensuring consistent security even when the data leaves the enterprise, that becomes all the more important now. So it's obvious that security has evolved a lot since the business started. What do you think is uh, is coming up? What are the future risks we should be worried about? So there's a number of areas where there's a lot of uh, interesting things happening. I think one of the most exciting areas is around uh, quantum computing. So. Uh, this is something that, of course, has been a popular area of research for a while, but we really are in uh, at the cusp of being able to develop large-scale quantum computers within the next uh, next decade or so. Um, now, the challenge with quantum computing is obviously it can be used for a lot of great things and do a lot of good with it, but equally, it does mean that the exponential increase in computing power that quantum computers could give us can be used to break a lot of the uh, security systems that are being deployed today. So it's very easy to think of this as a problem for future generations and actually why should I care about the data that I'm putting online today? 
But if you think about the value of data that you're putting online today, it doesn't go away in 10 years time or 20 years time. You'd still want your health records to be private in 20, 30 years time throughout your lifetime. You'd want your national um, secrets to be secure for um, beyond your lifetime potentially. So we have to really start planning for some of these emerging threats today and put in place mechanisms to protect the data, not just against current threats, but also uh, future threats over the next 10, 20, 50 year time horizon. So this is an area where there's a lot of exciting work going on around developing the next generation of algorithms and uh, technologies to protect the data from the threat of uh, quantum computers uh, that don't even exist today. So that's a, that's a really interesting concept. You're, you're developing systems to protect you against a threat that doesn't yet exist. So I think that's a, that's a really exciting area. Um, another area that uh, is getting a lot of interest is around the security of a lot of the uh, automated AI and uh, machine learning uh, systems that are being developed. Uh, there's a lot of specific types of threats uh, that apply to some of these algorithms that don't necessarily apply to conventional systems. So by being able to um, modify the training data, for instance, you can modify the dynamics of your uh, um, machine learning algorithms and uh, cause effects that uh, may not have been intended by uh, whoever was developing that system. So there's a lot of uh, interesting quirks around uh, uh, some of these emerging technologies that may not have been considered when uh, these technologies were initially designed. Uh, similarly, things like IoT being deployed at scale, uh, there are specific threats to those uh, systems where a lot of the um, security technologies were initially developed for high power computing environments but they're no longer relevant for a tiny little sensor that might be sitting in the middle of nowhere running out of uh, battery power, um, but still generating data that's quite sensitive. Well, there's a few things there. So if we, if we start with the quantum computing issues, that feels like a really hard sell. If I'm a CEO who doesn't want to invest more than I have to in security now, how can you convince me to invest uh, in security for a threat that isn't even here yet? Well, I think it all comes down to uh, what we believe the value of the data is. And actually, it might not be relevant for all types of data. So if you're handling transactional data that doesn't really have a uh, persistent value beyond a particular transaction, uh, then you probably don't need to actually plan beyond a uh, fairly short time frame. But if you are a company that's developing healthcare uh, record systems, for instance, then that absolutely does have value in the long term. Um, and it is something that you would want to give your customers confidence that actually if they're putting their sensitive data on your um, on your uh, infrastructure, then that's going to keep uh, that's going to stay protected, not just today, but throughout the lifetime of that patient who would not necessarily want their data to be exposed um, at any time in the future. And do we understand it enough? You know, are we able to build security systems yet that would protect against these threats? Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting work going on in this space. And uh, obviously it is still reasonably early days, but there's uh, some really great researchers, uh, both in the US, the UK, and uh, globally that are working on this problem. 
Um, the really exciting thing that's happening is uh, we're taking a standards-based approach uh, to solving this problem. So instead of uh, building individual algorithms that could um, solve this issue, what we're looking at is classes of algorithms and how we standardize this so that actually we have a complete tool set of different algorithms that could be applied as and when the threat starts becoming real. Um, and by studying the nature of some of these algorithms, there's a whole class of uh, different things called uh, lattice-based uh, encryption algorithms, for instance. We can understand how these algorithms will respond to uh, attacks by quantum computers, and we can model them quite effectively as well. Um, so clearly you could argue, well, we haven't invented a quantum computer yet, so how can you be absolutely sure? But we still understand how the quantum computer would behave at large scale based on the models that we have of a quantum computer, and therefore we can simulate those attacks quite accurately against the algorithms. And obviously the, uh, the uh, security bad guys are probably looking at the same sort of research. So do you think that they're looking at that already and thinking about how they can use, uh, use this to, to break in? Uh, without a doubt, there will be people that are looking at how to uh, monetize some of this in, in, a, in an illicit way. Um, so that's always how the security industry works, I suppose. Uh, you have the good guys that are developing the tools to protect uh, people and you have the bad guys that are trying to stay ahead on the good guys. So it's always a constant game of chess. So I have no doubt that there is a lot of uh, lot of work going on on the other side as well. I'm very conscious right now that I've been stuck in a house with uh, with two little boys for a while. So bad guys and good guys is clearly the limit of my uh, <laughs> my vocabulary uh, at the uh, moment. <laughs> So AI and ML feels like that's getting um, a lot of attention in the security world at the moment. What, what are you seeing? Yeah, that's definitely an interesting area. And I think being able to build um, algorithms that um, almost treat these, um, these AI and ML algorithms as people, that's one of the areas that I think is quite interesting because um, at the end of the day, these are, again, entities that are consuming and producing data just like people would or any other device would. So applying some of the same techniques and treating them uh, just like um, any other entity that produces and consumes data, I think is a really interesting area. But some of these uh, specific threats that apply to the uh, AI and ML algorithms, I think that's an area where there does need to be a lot more research around how we ensure the training models that are used for these algorithms can be protected against some of the more sophisticated attacks that are being developed in this space. Now, I know your company has focused uh, quite a bit on uh, IoT as well. So what is it you're seeing there? Yeah, so I think IoT has come a long way since we first started working in this space. So when we first started, um, security for the IoT was really quite primitive, I would say. So you would have been surprised at how bad the security was in a lot of critical infrastructure and components of our national infrastructure that was ha handling a lot of sensitive data. But today, I think there's been a lot of good work that's been done by the governments around improving that and standardizing that. Uh, one of the great uh, initiatives that the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK did last year was around developing secure by design principles for IoT devices. 
Um, so this means that not only are you developing cutting edge uh, technologies and uh, algorithms to address the threat, but you're ensuring that there's a more consistent layer of security being deployed across um, the IoT devices and networks. Um, and this allows any vendor to effectively assess their products against a baseline set of standards that are being set out by uh, the NCSE, which I think is a really good thing. So initiatives like this have been really driving up the level of security that we have in the IoT. And I think we are definitely in a much better place now than we were five, 10 years ago. It makes for some quite good headlines. I think, um, you know, not that long ago, we saw uh, cameras that are in, in rooms to monitor people's children being hacked into. It, it feels like we still have a lot of risks within some of the products that are out there. Yes, exactly. And I think that, uh, especially in the consumer side of things, there is still definitely a long way to go. On the industrial side, there's been a lot of good work done. The next phase is really to pull through some of that really good um, uh, outcomes that we've achieved in the industrial uh, IoT side and apply it into the consumer devices. It feels like at least people understand why this is a risk. This must be helpful. Definitely. Again, if you look back to when we first started operating in this space, uh, it was always a difficult sell to get uh, decision makers and organizations to understand why security was an important thing. Um, I would quite often get challenged by customers who would say, well, who is actually going to hack my data? I'm just putting you know, video camera feeds or uh, um, messages about my staff online. Who would be interested in that? Uh, interestingly, you know, 10 years on and uh, with a, a lot of regulation like GDPR and so on, we never get asked that question anymore. So definitely there is a lot more awareness about the, uh, the dangers on uh, data that's, uh, uh, that's being put online. And I think that's a good thing, but there's still a lot more work to do. But we are definitely making progress in that space. And with that awareness has come sometimes, I think, a sense of fatigue, hearing about more data breaches um, or more alarm bells. Have you noticed any of that? Yeah, I think that that's definitely inevitable. Um, ultimately, you know, our position on this um, as a company, and this is one of our fundamental philosophies as a company, is it shouldn't be up to the end users to have to worry about security. It shouldn't be up to uh, even the the bank or uh, the service provider that uh, to worry about security. If we can actually get products to build security into uh, themselves by design consistently, then actually we can take away some of that worry from the end users and the service providers and so on. And actually that's the way we can achieve the consistency ultimately, because actually it's not the end user's job to think, is this product going to protect my data? But Unfortunately, we're not quite there yet, which means that we are relying on the end users to be a little bit more savvy about the, the kind of uh, products they're using and the technology that they're, uh, they're deploying. But longer term, that can't be the right way to do this. I mean, when you go to a car showroom and you buy a car, you don't uh, necessarily go into that much detail about how the, the lock on the door works, right? You just assume that it works because you're buying from a reputable company. Um, so over time, we will get to the point where a similar sort of culture exists within uh, um, within digital products, software, for instance. Um, but we're not quite there yet. 
So that when we get to that point where you are relying on the, the vendors to build security by design, I believe that's when we will start addressing this fatigue issue because actually people won't need to think about security anymore. They will expect it. How far away from that do you think we might be? Well, if you look at how it's evolved over the last 10 years, I think give it another uh, five to 10 years and I think we will be pretty much there actually. The, the rate at which things are improving, uh, there are increasingly more efforts to standardize security. Um, so these are all very good things. And the more of these standards get adopted and the more regulation there is, uh, the more consistency we will achieve. Now, 10 years is a, is a long time. There's a lot of businesses that don't make it past one year. So what do you think the, the secret to your success has been? So I suppose it's because um, we started in the previous recession. And there, there is a theory that businesses that start during a recession are always a lot more robust than uh, ones that start during a, uh, a healthy economic uh, climate. Um, I think what it does force you to do is be very disciplined from day one about the fundamentals of business. So one of the things that I believe um, is, uh, is wrong about the advice that's given to startups, for instance, is the emphasis that's put on fundraising. Um, a lot of startups, particularly in the technology space, seem to think that fundraising is the end goal and the measure of success. When you start in a recession, fundraising isn't really an option for you because nobody's investing. So it forces you to think about things like um, revenue, cost, all of those fundamental things that define success in a business that often get overlooked in some of these uh, high growth tech companies that manage to attract a lot of investment upfront. So um, I do believe that getting those fundamentals right and building that culture into the company early on is absolutely fundamental to success, whether it's in the tech uh, sector or any other sector. I think that's a, a really good point because you do see people celebrating their their funding and their investments maybe more than you hear about how successful they are at selling or actually filling a gap in the market. Absolutely. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that uh, businesses shouldn't fundraise or that that's a bad thing. But of course, there must be a purpose to the fundraise and making sure that you're spending more time understanding what that uh, value proposition is and what that funding is going to be used for is extremely important and often overlooked by a lot of startups nowadays. Now, we, depending on your point of view, we're either in a recession or very close to being in one. So what advice would you have for people who really want to start up a business at the moment? So I think it's quite difficult. Um, it, it's very difficult to argue that we're not in a recession right now. I suppose <laughs> the question really is how long we will be in this. And uh, it may be a, a very short, sharp recession and with a recovery that... Uh, that comes through very quickly, or it might be a prolonged one. I suppose that's really the question. So um, in either case, I do think you have to be prepared to um, survive this period through organic means. So uh, what I mean by that is all of those, again, core competencies of a business around selling, uh, generating revenue, building uh, value into your product, all of those things are extremely important right now. 
uh, more so than it's been uh, at any point over the past 10 years. And where did you get your learning around how to run a business? Um, because obviously you're, you're very good at it and you've embodied a lot of those skills that you need outside of just having the technical understanding. Well, I think a lot of it was uh, trial and error, if I'm uh, completely honest. So when I started um, SQR Systems, I didn't have any experience of the commercial world. So I started straight out of university with no uh, no work experience. So a lot of it had to just be trial and error. But I think the key was that we were able to learn very quickly from our mistakes. I was able to build a, uh, a very experienced team around me very quickly. Um, and that's how we navigated those early days. I think if I didn't have the team around me that had already done this before, it would have been a very, very difficult journey uh, and we probably wouldn't have survived it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's extremely important that if you don't have the experience to do something that you find people that do and you make sure that uh, you, you build a, a strong network around you of support that can get you through those, uh, those early days of uncertainty. And are you doing anything differently now as we adapt to, to kind of make sure that you thrive over the next year or so? Uh, again, just being much more disciplined about uh, cost control, about uh, uh, making sure we're focused with our sales efforts, um, making sure we're even more focused on our product development. Um, so it's really just a lot more focus on those things that we were already doing, I would, I would say. And are there any interesting things coming out you can tell us about for product updates? Well, there's going to be a couple of uh, announcements over the next couple of months. Um, the main direction that we decided to go at the, the end of last year, end of 2019, really, was around moving away from this idea that we were going to build a platform um, that will deliver security to people by getting them to adopt our products to this concept of uh, making our uh, Cirrus platform a security backbone that integrates into any product that people use. Uh, one of our big learnings from building the Cirrus app, for instance, is that you could build the best security in the world, but if people are using something else that they love, they are never going to use your product and your security is going to count for nothing. So breaking down those islands of security and islands of communications that uh, people have built up by allowing people to freely communicate using whatever tools they have and building security around their natural behavior is a much more powerful way to achieve uh, uh, consistent security across an organization. So that's been a, a, a major strategic um, shift for uh, how we're building our Cirrus platform. Uh, so there will be a, a few great uh, announcements coming up this year around that. Well, it sounds like things have actually got busier for you lately than, uh, than not. So are you finding time to, uh, to continue developing and, and learning yourself? Absolutely. Well, that's one of the good things about the lockdown, right? You get time to read. So uh, <laughs> all of that time that you spend on a train or on a plane or on a taxi is all sitting at home now uh, in front of your computer. So uh, I think learning is definitely very important for any business and uh, you have to make time to read and uh, stay on top of the latest trends. So uh, that's definitely something that I, I've always made time for. And are there any um, areas that you would recommend people look at or any certifications that you would suggest to people if they're sort of listening and thinking about how they can get more involved, particularly in some of those future threats that we've been talking about? Well, I think 
the first thing to work out if you want to get involved in cybersecurity is what part of the the security problem you want to address because cybersecurity is such a broad area so you could look at anything from data center security to how to protect um, your laptop or your mobile phone against um, malware um, or to deploy access control on your networks. I mean, there's such a broad variety of different problems that you could uh, get into in cybersecurity. So um, instead of focusing so much around the certifications or any specific um, thing like that, I think people need to focus on what part of that cybersecurity problem they want to solve. We made a decision pretty early on that we're going to focus on uh, the security of communications data. Uh, so this is all about how you protect the communications coming out of your mobile phone, whether that's uh, voice calls or video calls or uh, uh, messaging and so on. Um, but, you know, we, and then we were pretty focused on solving that problem better than anybody else could. So I think having that focus early on is uh, is extremely important. Once you once you work out what part of that problem you want to solve, then you can start building your uh, uh, your path into the industry. I think that's uh, I think that's really good advice. Now we we end each of our podcasts with ten quick fire questions. So uh, you need to just answer as quickly as uh, as you can. The first thing that comes into your head. Sure. Okay. So what turns you on professionally? Solving problems, solving difficult problems, uh, especially with advanced technology. What turns you off professionally? I find it very frustrating trying to uh, convince people um, why they need to invest in things like security, uh, which in this day and age, given how much data we're putting online, should be pretty obvious. How do you unwind? (laughs) <laughs> so uh, we, uh, my wife and I have our uh, first baby on the way in June, in July, sorry. So uh, getting uh, eight hours of sleep straight uh, and reading a, a good book, I'm told this is probably the last opportunity to do that. So I'm going to make the most of that one. <laughs> Maybe in 10 years, you'll be, you'll be back. To- <laughs> <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to try? So I mentioned my interest in uh, graphics before. So uh, I would love to have worked at Disney as an animator. Uh, so if they are looking for an animator with zero creative talent, <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> what activity gives you the most energy? So one of the things that I really love about uh, being in uh, entrepreneurship and the, the startup uh, environment is the uh, passion of people um, and uh, people that Uh, love what they do and believe in what they do. And that really energizes me. Who is your biggest inspiration? That's a good question. Um, There are so many, I suppose. It's difficult to choose one. I suppose um, when I was uh, starting off um, in the industry, I found it very inspiring, uh, the the competition between uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs to constantly push the boundaries of technology. So I'd have to pick both of them. I think I, I'm not sure I can pick between them. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Um, how about haircuts? So uh, <laughs> I managed to cut my own hair over the weekend, and that seems to be quite a useful skill to have right now. I think so, a lot of people would be jealous of that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad there's not a video call. <laughs> <laughs> you are at your best when you're doing what? solving difficult problems. 
If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? Um, so I've always believed in uh, the, the saying from, uh, I think it was Confucius who said it first, um, which was, if you choose a job you love, then you'll never have to work a day in your life. And I, I very much tried to live by that, uh, that principle. So I'd have to pick that one. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? <laughs> I'm glad the question is why rather than if. Um, <laughs> but, uh, maybe uh, something around being very obliging and uh, following the lockdown in instructions. <laughs> well, it seems like a lot of people find that difficult. So uh, you might be you might be in there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's been really interesting, and I think there's a, there's so much that you're doing that's become super relevant in the last few weeks. So um, I really would encourage anyone that, that hasn't explored uh, your solutions to go and go and check them out. Um, and how can people get in touch with you if, if they would like to do that? So I'm on all the, the social media uh, channels, so uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, and so on. But uh, if somebody does want to find out about some of our solutions and our technologies, then uh, do drop me a line at info at sqrsystems.com um, and it will be forwarded to me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.